Welcome to the Geektastic Dad podcast. My name is Jason. I'm your friendly neighborhood geek and father of a daughter. I, I know it's been some time since I released another episode, and for that I do apologize. Life gets a little crazy sometimes, but here I am ready to roll. Uh, in this episode, I'm going to talk about Chapter 5 of the Player's Handbook, which deals with equipment and expenses that your character has to manage. Uh, equipments can be a little bit challenging sometimes, but hopefully I'll help shed some light on the subject. If you would like to visit me on social media or send me an email, point your favorite web browser to geektastic.link contact. Uh, you can support this crazy little habit of mine by going to geektastic.link support. If you'd like to leave me a voice message and possibly have it played on my podcast, with your permission, of course, visit geektastic.link voicemail. All of these links can be found in the show notes. Please like and subscribe my podcast on your favorite app, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and so on. Thank you for joining me again, and let's get started. And now it's time for another session of... What the geek? can't get enough of that ridiculous intro. Okay, so I have enjoyed two wonderful iterations of the Dune movie. First, obviously, being the 1984 version with Sting. The full two hours and 17 minutes of it was fabulous. Uh, then in 2000, a new version of Dune was released uh, with a lot of actors I'd never even heard of before. But had a playtime of about four hours and 25 minutes. It was really long, but I thought it was just a wonderful remake of it. As you probably know, Dune is getting a new facelift with the upcoming 2021 release starring Jason Momoa. Uh, it should run about 2 hours and 35 minutes if IMDB is right. Uh, I watched the trailer, link is in the show notes, and I have to say I'm very hopeful. Uh, it does mix a bit of humor, which I guess is okay. I, I prefer a more serious version of it, but that's fine. Uh, but for what I seen thus far the trailer promises to be this beautiful rendition of the, an all-time classic uh, take a few minutes watch the trailer see for yourself and you know judge for yourself um, second topic is Star Trek Lower Decks it has premiered again I can't speak for anyone else but I really love this animated spin-off of the Star Trek universe it's humorous and enjoyable and I've come to just absolutely adore the characters uh, it puts a fun and silly spin uh, on the universe, which is generally very serious, even makes fun of the cavalier nature of William Riker, which that episode was hysterical. I don't want to provide any spoilers, so I'll refrain from going into any further details. Just do yourself a favor and watch it if you've never seen it before. Okay, last topic. Um, since we're on the topic of D&D itself, a friend of mine mentioned that there are nerds candies with D&D adventures. I went in search of more information on this, came across an article in Nerdvana, uh, linked in the show notes. It turns out there's actually seven separate adventures that you can collect. Um, there are a couple of videos on the link as well, which are super fun. I'm not a big fan of nerds as a candy, but as far as promotions go, this one is definitely working for me. I, I really want to go out and buy some nerds. So take a, you know take a gander. If it's your thing, grab it. Uh, if you happen to find any, um, I'd love to hear back. You can, you know, go to geektastic.link slash contact and uh, send me a note. And let me know if you, if they're as great as they 
proclaimed to be. So, okay, my last topic is about the Mighty Ducks Game Changers. It seems reviving beloved 80s and 90s movies into TV series is the new thing. It started with Cobra Kai and now the Mighty Ducks. I'm actually pretty excited to see if this catches on, and if so, what might be next. So anyone my age probably remembers the 1992's um, The Mighty Ducks movie starring Emilio Estevez as Gordon Bombay and Lane Smith as Coach Riley. Now, I'm a bit late to the game, I admit, but I just finished binge-watching the first season of The Mighty Ducks Game Changers. The plot is basically surrounding 12-year-old Evan, who gets cut from the Mighty Ducks because he's not good enough. At this point, the Mighty Ducks have won championships 10 years in a row, and they've basically become what the Hawks were in the original movie. Evan's mother, Alex, played by Lauren Graham, has this epic meltdown and goes on a crusade to create a new team uh, called the Don't Bothers, playing off the Ducks coach telling Evan, don't bother. They pulled together this ragtag group of misfits and outcasts um, to, to play hockey. However, in order to become an actual team, they need a coach and a facility. And Evan's mom happens to find the Ice Palace, this rundown ice rink, uh, you know, owned by none other than Gordon Bombay. But there's one hitch. Bombay has a sign up prohibiting hockey of any kind. And while Evan's mom does manage to persuade him, he refuses to coach or even be a part of the hockey team. So there was this fun reunion of six of the original Ducks. Uh, Fulton Reed, played by Eldon Hessen. Adam Banks, played by Vinny LaRusso. Kenny Wu, from D2 and D3, played by Justin Wong. Uh, Les Averman, played by Matt Doherty. And Connie, played by Marguerite uh, Moreau. And, and finally, Guy Germain, Germain, played by Garrett Henson. Now, it's interesting to note that in season one, there's no sign of the beloved Captain Charlie Conway, which is played by Josh Jackson. However, in an article from Tom's Guide, it seems Charlie will be joining the show in season two. So that's kind of exciting. I don't want to give away any spoilers, so I'll stop there. However, if you enjoyed the original Mighty Ducks movies, you're going to love this reboot. As I said before, I sure hope there are more plans to reboot 80s and 90s movies into TV shows because so far I've really enjoyed both Cobra Kai and the Mighty Ducks Game Changers. There's no date for season two yet, but the filming is expected to finish by spring of 2022 and we could see a new season as early as summer of 2022. So fingers crossed for that. That's it for What the Geek. Now on to the rest of the podcast. Thank you again for joining me for another episode of the Geek-tastic Dad podcast. For adventurers, equipment is important. Your character basically has only what he or she owns, from weapons down to armors down to trinkets, as you go about the countryside doing what you do. Now, I can't speak for all D&D players, uh, but there's something super fun about a session in a town where shopping is involved, especially if you've run into some hefty loot along the way. Now, before we get started, there's a little something to be said about starting equipment. I've mentioned this before in Chapter 3 uh, of the podcast, but your character will start with a set of equipment. Starting equipment can be handled a few different ways, but it's ultimately up to your DM. You can roll with the recommendations in Chapter 3 combined with your background, or the DM may have some custom-built engineer kit with a few modifications here and there. Uh, another way to go about this is to have your character get some starting gold and be left to purchase equipment from the items in this chapter. Regardless of how it's done, your character should start with a few items and hopefully a weapon or armor, if that's your thing, uh, before you set out on your adventures. 
Now, this podcast uh, will cover several topics in Chapter 5, from the basics of wealth and coinage all the way down to mounds, trade goods, and trinkets. As we go through this, it might help you to understand more about what equipment your character needs um, and what you should be looking for as you go about your adventures. Understanding the currency and worth of items, such as gems and other goods, is a good place to start with regards to wealth and coinage. Uh, the most common currency system includes platinum, gold, silver, and copper. Uh, these coins are in order of greatest to least wealth. So platinum pieces have the most wealth, copper pieces have the least amount of wealth. The exchange rate in most systems is pretty simple. 10 copper equals one silver piece. 10 silver pieces equal one gold. 10 gold equals one platinum. Um, a lot of times you'll see abbreviated PP for platinum, GP for gold, SP for silver, and CP for copper. Now, the player's handbook also includes Electrum, or EP, uh, which is halfway between gold and silver, where one EP is equivalent to half a gold. And to be honest, I've never used this in a campaign setting because it's too much of a headache. For each class, uh, you have a recommended starting funds based on, you guessed it, dice rolls. Some classes are prone to end up with more starting gold than others. Bards, rangers, clerics, and fighters, for example, will get 5d4 times 10 gold, meaning they could end up having anywhere from 50 to 200 gold pieces. Whereas a monk may only get 5d4 gold, so they'll get between 5 and 20 gold pieces at best. You can check out the starting wealth by class in Chapter 5. Uh, there's a table in there, uh, so you can see what your chosen class will get. You'll gain gold as you adventure, uh, maybe even platinum, because just about every encounter will result in some coinage or items that you can sell for coins. So you might get gems, weapons, armors, even silly mundane trinkets that you may be able to exchange for a little coin when you get to a found town or find a trader. Which brings me to my next topic, selling treasure. You will inevitably have an opportunity to sell the goods that you've collected along the way. As a general rule, standard items like armor, weapons, and other equipment, uh, you'll get about half the normal price of these items. Remember, these merchants have to make money too. Selling magical items is a bit more difficult, because you first have to find someone who has the capacity and the want to purchase such things. And that comes, um, and then comes the price, because these prices can vary. Gems, jewelry, and other objects generally retain their full value, but again, you have to find a merchant who has the capacity or the need, or both, to buy such things, uh, but sometimes sometimes you can just trade them as well. You might be able to trade some, a few gems for a, a new sword or something. Oftentimes, though, um, the DM will require you to be in larger, even more prestigious locations in order to actually sell some of these more rare or expensive items for coin. All right, so moving on to armor and shields. Now this gets a little tricky because armor comes in different types and they have their bonuses as well as disadvantages. You also have to worry about proficiencies. Now your character can potentially choose from light armor, medium armor, uh, heavy armor, as well as shields. Not every character should wear armor though. Uh, you have to consider whether or not your character is proficient with certain types of armor, uh, which will depend on your class primarily. If your character chooses to wear armor without proficiency, then your character will have a disadvantage on ability checks, saving throws, and attack rolls that involve strength or dexterity. And if you're a spellcaster, you can't cast spells if you have the wrong kind of armor on. 
So what does armor do? Well, it increases your armor class, or AC, which is a numeric value that determines your character's ability to withstand or avoid an attack. Remember, attack rolls oppose AC, and if you meet or exceed the AC, uh, the target will take damage. The armor table will show how this different types of armor will impact your AC. Without any armor, most characters get a base of 10, plus their dexterity modifier. If you look at padded or leather armor, for example, you get a base of 11 plus your dexterity modifier, so he bumps it up one. Um, moving up to a medium armor, you'll see a base that varies between 12 and 15 plus your dexterity modifier, but there's also a plus two max to the dexability modifier. So if you have a plus three or plus four in your dex, you lose a couple points. Heavy armor generally gives you just a specific armor class. Um, so your you know, ring mail, for example, you'll get an AC of 14. Plate will give you an AC of 18. And if you add a shield to that, you get an additional plus two to your AC as well. Heavy armor can impede your character's ability to move quickly and stealthily. In fact, most cases it does. The armor tables will show disadvantage under stealth if that applies. Uh, if the strength column is populated, it will indicate that there is a strength requirement to wear the armor without impediment. So it'll show something like uh, strength 13 or strength 15, which means your strength ability score must meet those values in order for your character to move at normal speed. Otherwise, it'll be re reduced by 10 feet per round. Um, per the player's handbook, each category of armor also takes a specific amount of time to don and doff. Uh, that can be found under getting into and out of armor. Light armor takes one minute, for example, to put on and one minute to take off. Heavy armor is going to take 10 minutes to put on and 5 minutes to take off. Some classes are better off without armor. Barbarians get an unarmored defense at level 1, which gives them an AC of 10 plus dex plus their constitution modifiers. Uh, and they can use a shield and will stack on top of that. Now monks have the same or similar feat, except their AC is 10 plus dex plus wisdom modifiers, but they cannot use a shield and still gain that benefit. But on top of that, at level 2, monks get unarmored movement, which boosts their movement by 10 feet per round while not wearing any armor or wielding a shield. So real quick, one last note about armor is to be mindful of the weight, because your character has a max carrying capacity. And if the total weight of your equipment exceeds your capacity, you become impeded, which means you'll experience some disadvantages. Now on to weapons. Now weapons are fun, right? Uh, it's a meat and potatoes of D&D characters for most of the classes. Th so there are two categories of weapons, basically. They're simple and martial. Uh, this includes both melee and ranged weapons, and the class you choose will determine what weapons you have proficiency with or what your character has proficiency with. So what does proficiency really mean? Well, in a weapon, it means that you are able to add your proficiency bonus to the attack roll for that weapon. Uh, weapons also have properties, and there, there's a few of them. Um, I think it's important to understand these properties, so we'll go through those now. Uh, the first property we're going to talk about is ammunition. So weapons with the ammunition property basically means the weapon is useless without ammunition. Bows have to have arrows to work. A crossbow needs to have bolts in order to work. And loading the weapon is considered part of your attack action. Now there's sort of a subsection to this called loading, which basically means you can fire one piece of ammunition per attack action, bonus action, or reaction. So what does this mean? 
Well, let's look at a fifth level fighter. They get a feat called Extra Attack, which allows the fighter to attack twice instead of once whenever he or she takes the attack action. In this case, while wielding a crossbow, that fighter can only fire once, even with the extra attack. It's a bit confusing, but hopefully that makes sense. One last note about ranged weapons is if you use a ranged weapon to execute a melee attack, it's treated like an imp improvised weapon. So we'll talk about more of that maybe. Uh, finesse is another property. When attacking with a weapon that has the finesse property, you get to choose whether to use your strength or dexterity modifier for the attack damage rolls or to attack and damage rolls. Examples of finesse weapons are rapier, short sword, scimitar. Um, heavy is another property. Heavy weapons are, well, they're, they're heavy. Uh, they're massive in size and weight makes them uh, far too difficult for any character or creature that isn't considered small or tiny to use. So if you have a gnome wielding a great axe, the character will be attacking at disadvantage every time. Uh, light, conversely, um, light weapons are, again, pretty self-explanatory. They are very light. Uh, what makes this property important is the two-weapon fighting, uh, which allows you to make an additional attack as a bonus action. This has to be done with a light weapon. Uh, we'll talk about that more when we get to Chapter 9. Ranged. Uh, so ranged weapons, there is a defined range that they, the projectile or the weapon itself can travel. It's actually two separate ranges. Uh, the first is the weapon's standard range. The second represents the weapon's longest range. If you exceed the standard or normal range, the attack will be at disadvantage, and then you just cannot attack beyond the weapon's longest range. And then there's reach. So melee weapons uh, will have a reach property, which basically means uh, it adds an additional five feet to your reach when you attack with it. Uh, this also impacts opportunity attacks. Uh, there's a special weapon property. A, a weapon with this property means that the weapon is governed by additional or unusual rules. Special weapons in the player's handbook basically just include a lance and a net. Uh, lances require two hands, and the attack is at disadvantage when the target is five feet uh, with, from you because lances are very long. Nets basically can't uh, contain a creature above large and has no effect uh, on formless creatures. It also details freeing oneself from a net. Ironically, in all the years I've played D&D, &D, um, I've never used a net as a player or a DM. So maybe you'll have better luck with that. Thrown. So the thrown property basically means the weapon itself must be thrown as part of the ranged attack. Uh, there are some weapons, for example, a hand axe or daggers, that can also be thrown. Uh, so they can be used as melee weapons or they can be used as ranged weapons. When this weapon is thrown... Uh, the same ability modifier used for the melee attack must be applied to the ranged attack. And then there's two-handed. Simply put, two-handed weapons require two hands for it to be wielded. Um, they make sure to let you know that this property only applies when attacking with the weapon. Apparently it's okay to hold it with one hand. <laughs> Whatever that's worth. Uh, versatile. So the last property we're going to talk about is the versatile property, which means that the weapon can be used with one hand or two hands, and there's different damage rolls depending on how you wield it. Generally, using two hands grants you a uh, higher damage per attack. So that basically summarizes the properties. There are a couple more topics related to weapons. Um, first is the impri improvised weapon. We've mentioned that before. Basically, if you choose to wield something as a weapon, 
uh, that was not intended to be a weapon or is a weapon but wasn't meant to be used that particular way. Uh, it falls under improvised weapon. Um, this includes, I don't know, things like frying pans, broken glass, even disembodied appendages, appendages of your fallen foes. True story. Uh, I had a barbarian wield part of a dead creature as a weapon. It was awesome. Improvised weapons are a bit tricky and really up to the DM's discretion. If the object is close enough to an actual weapon of similar size and structure, then the DM may rule it uh, to be used as such. An example in the player's handbook is using a table leg um, as a club. So you use the club stats for a table leg. All other objects will deal basically 1d4 damage or whatever the DM says. That's what it comes down to. Uh, final topic on weapon is silvered weapons. Uh, some creatures will have immunity or resistance to non-magic weapons unless that non-magic weapon contains silver. Honestly, this, again, is something I've never really run into in my games, um, except when hunting very specific creatures like werewolves and such, vampires. Um, the reason is, is that most characters don't care to have silver in their weapons. It's just not a big deal. Uh, okay, so that concludes the weapons. Moving on to adventuring gear. This should be a fairly short section. Adventuring gear comes in all sorts of flavors, and the player's handbook lets you know up front that some of the items described under the section have, a, have special rules that you'll need to know about. I won't go into that too much, um, because it's outlined under the adventuring gear table, but it is there. Be aware of it. Uh, okay, so ammunition. Of course, many of the ranged weapons require ammunition. We talked about that, such as arrows, needles, bolts, bullets. Um, if you have a bow, it's fairly useless without arrows, unless you want to use it as an improvised weapon. Uh, if you have a crossbow, it's pretty useless without bolts, and so on. If you have a ranged weapon that requires ammo or has the ammo property, be sure to buy some ammo. Uh, okay, so there's different spellcasting uh, classes have uh, focus, items that require that provide focus. Arcane focus, for like wizards and sorcerers, is an object that is used as a material component in some spells. And we'll talk about this more in chapter 10. But most spells have negligible components. In fact, unless the material component has a specific relevant value, like maybe diamonds, uh, I just assume the spellcaster will spend time or money uh, collecting those components, wrap that into their daily cost that I also don't do. Anyways, <laughs> just uh, just my personal preference as a DM. I don't want to I don't want to role play, you know, picking herbs. Arcane focus can be a crystal, an orb, a rod, staff, or a wand. Uh, druids have something similar. Uh, druidic focus, uh, same thing. It's just used for spellcasting focus for druids. So in lieu of the above objects, uh, it'll take the form of a sprig of mistletoe, a totem, or wooden staff, or maybe a yew wand. And then for clerics, same thing. They have a, a focus device. They call it a holy symbol um, in the, the form of like an amulet, an emblem, or a reliquary. reliquary. Other adventuring gear. So there's a laundry list of other items you can buy as uh, adventuring gear. Um, I urge you to review these items. I'm not going to go through them all. It's, there's a lot. Um, but as you build your character's inventory, take note of these. You might want something here or there. Um, all these items are explained in this section, so be sure to read through it. Decide if you really need, I don't know, acid or oil for your character's inventory. Especially if you're buying it with what little gold you get up front. There are equipment packs, and we talked about this, starting gear. Um, there are several template packs of equipment used for starting gear, depending on your class. You may need one. Um, if, if you don't get starting gear, you can actually purchase them. They actually have a price tag in there. 
So these equipment packs uh, are available even at a, a, you know, when you have gold and you buy your stuff, depending on what character you start with, uh, will determine the pack you want to get. If you are not sure uh, what to do or what to get, talk to your DM. He or she should be able to guide you to the best options. And then there's tools. Tools are a fun way to liven up the game a bit. Um, tools allow you to craft, repair, forge, uh, etc. items that your character can't do without them. Artisan Tools is probably the most extensive collection of tools in this list because it encompasses any tool that your character would need to pursue some kind of tra uh, trade or craft. Ooh, got that one backwards a little bit. Uh, something like glass blowing, leatherworking, smithing, etc. These tools offer your character a way to make extra coin uh, while you're traveling the countryside. Maybe you can stop in at the local jewelry, a jeweler and uh, offer your services for a few gold. Um, do a roadside stand with alchemic uh, brewing booth. Uh, perhaps someone in town is in need of some woodworking and you just happen to have a carpenter's tool. So check out the tools. I think you have to usually choose one or languages or something uh, when you start your character. Other tools might be less noble. Uh, there's disguise kits, forgery kits, thieves tools, gaming sets. Um, most of those are found in the ownership of rogues. Uh, perhaps you need some legitimate looking papers to enter a keep. No problem. Forge away. Uh, need to get into a locked room? Hope someone has some thieves tools or the knock spell. And then there's musical instruments. Those are fun too. Uh, you can choose from a variety listed under the section. Now, personally, I've always wondered what it would be like to play a dwarven bard uh, with bagpipes. Just one of my things. But you don't have to be a bard to have a musical instrument uh, or even to make coin playing in pubs. Uh, your character could just like to play a flute when you're traveling across the countryside or strum the lute at the campfire. So tools are a great way to kind of provide a little fun in the campaign. Uh, they can also be very useful as part of your character as well, you know, especially when it comes to making money when you're at the lower levels and you're not finding a whole bunch of loot. So we also have a section on mounts and vehicles. Uh, mounts are another fun part of D&D, especially when you consider you can actually get an elephant as a mount. Um, I urge any players out there to ask for that. Uh, unless you're in my campaign, then don't ask. Uh, take take a look at the different mounts. Um, then below that is a table that outlines tech, harnesses, um, and drawn vehicles, such as carriages or chariots. And then finally, you have saddles. Mounts and vehicles also include waterborne vehicles. So if you're in the need to acquire a rowboat or you have some coin and you really want a warship, that is definitely possible. Keep in mind that not all of these are completely complete inventories of possible equipment. If you have a savvy DM, you might be able to get your hands on a steam-powered horseless carriage or something like that, built by gnomish engineers, if you dare. Uh, then there's trade goods. Trade goods represent items you might use for barter or trade. And this section really just represents some of the items you might find within this particular genre of currency and their perspective rules or values. Um, this is by no means uh, an exhaustive list, but it does kind of get the players and DMs thinking about the value of a barter and trade system. Uh, we also have expenses. Expenses are comprised more of mundane costs associated with just being alive in most cases. Expenses include food, shelter, and clothing for the most part. You might notice that when you roll up your character, you have to pick a lifestyle. This is basically your cost of living. And if uh, you're following the rules to a T, then you'll deduct the cost equivalent to your character's lifestyle at the start of any given time period specified by the DM. Keep in mind the cost associated with your lifestyle is a per day cost. So if you 
do it per week, you multiply whatever that value is by seven days. For example, if you live a modest lifestyle, you're going to spend one gold uh, per day to maintain that lifestyle. So if you periodically, your periodic, periodic deduction period is weekly, you simply deduct seven gold at the start of each week. I don't know about other DMs out there, but I'm terrible about measuring passage of time. Usually when my players ask what time of day it is, I make rough guesses. And if you're in my campaign and you happen to be listening to this, forget everything I just said. Um, expenses also include food and drink as well as meals and lodging per day. Uh, food and drink is helpful if you want to role play the experience, but if you prefer to just skip ahead, uh, there's another table for meals and lodging that's based on your character's preferred lifestyle. So wrapping up the expenses section is a little section in the back uh, about services. Services are things like writing a coach cap, hiring a messenger, tolls, ships, passages, uh, ships passage. It's a good foundation for uh, or starting point. But to be honest, I vary these costs in my world based on the level of service the character's looking for and the area that they're in. So if you want, if you want passage, you could probably get it for one silver per mile if you don't mind fighting rats for your daily rations. If you want to sail the seas in style, you could probably do that at more of one gold per mile. And then wrapping up this chapter in the player's handbook is trinkets. Um, the last part of the chapter deals with trinkets. These are odds and ends that have no real value other than maybe your interest. Uh, there's a sample table where you can roll a d100 and randomly pick a trinket. So maybe your character finds a tiny silver uh, icon of a raven, or maybe a dead sprite inside a clear glass bottle. They're both pretty useless, unless, of course, the DM associates it with some value. Uh, this table could be handy if you've got a kender in your party. Just, you know, throwing that out there. Outside of that, it's good for gags and fun. I like to create trinkets with uh, simple magical properties sometimes. Like, maybe a character finds a small wooden box that, when opened, a mage hand tries to punch him in the face. Have a little fun with it. Trinkets can be fun. Uh, don't be surprised if your pesky players find an actual use for these ridiculous items. Because they will. I don't know about other DMs, but shopping trips are very taxing for me. Uh, do yourself a favor and prepare it ahead of time the best you can. Some Sometimes I'll ask my players uh, to let me know ahead of time what they're looking for. Then I have an idea of uh, like a framework uh, to try to figure out you know where, how, and how much for these items. Might even be able to tweak them so that they're unique but not exact. So something else to keep in mind your players are going to try and loot everything they can kill. Be careful what you throw at them, DMs, for they're just probably going to come across some unexpected weapon upgrades that you may not have been accounting for. Um, or maybe you do. Maybe you do account for it, and that's why you put it there. Uh, all right, folks, that's it for this episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider supporting my bad habit. Just point your favorite web browser to geektastic.link support. I appreciate you joining me. Be sure to like and share this podcast with your friends. Spread the word. If you'd like to visit me on social media, send me an email. Uh, you can open your browser to geektastic.link slash contact. Um, again, like and subscribe my podcast on your favorite app, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever it is. Um, you can see a full list at geektastic.link slash podcast. I also have a new embedded player there, so feel free to use that. Um, if you'd like to leave me a voicemail message and possibly have it played on my podcast, with your permission, of course, visit geektastic.link slash voicemail. So remember to be kind to each other, have fun, and always, always stay geektastic. Thanks again, everybody. Bye.